2020 Network is brought to you by Interac. Speed is key for Canadian shoppers. Is your business keeping up? It can with Interact Flash. It's the platform that millions of Canadians use to check out quickly and securely. Learn more at interact.ca. Hello everyone, it's Friday, February 8th. I've got a bit of a uh, cough, so please excuse me, I sound a bit like Kermit the Frog. Um, a quick note from us here, I've got David Reevely of the Canadian Press and Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's with me, and they have officially joined the network as, as regular panelists to Nthread, and we're better off, and our audience is better off for having your thoughtful and fresh and often witty perspectives on the show. So thank you to you both, and hello. Hi. I'm thrilled to be Shannon's sidekick. So, uh, and to our listeners, you can sort of sit back uh, and get used to us now. So here's the agenda for today. We've got this bombshell report out of the Globe and Mail that we're going to tackle. We've got the State of the Union address, and we've got this article, thank God for Canada, in the New York Times that we're going to look at. So first off, uh, and I've told my uh, companions here to interrupt me. This is a, if, if anything I've said is you know, not true or, or misled. Uh, this is a complicated case, and it sort of took Ottawa, it shook Ottawa over the last 24 hours. So a bombshell report by the Globe and Mail journalist Bob Fife, Stephen Chase, and Sean Fine was published yesterday morning with unnamed sources alleging that the PMO, the Prime Minister's office, put pressure on the former Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, to, quote, abandon the, pros- the, the prosecution of SNC-Lavalet. So let's back up this train a little bit. SNC-Lavalin, a giant Quebec-based engineering and construction firm, had been charged with fraud and corruption in connection to payments to public officials in Libya. We're talking. We're not talking about a small amount of money. We're talking about millions of dollars in bribes to, to Libyan officials to win contracts. These events uh, in question span 10 years, ending in 2011. RCMP laid charges in 2015. They are currently before a Montreal court, the company, for its part, has pleaded not guilty, and is. it's important to note that, that those allegations have not yet been proven in court. They've also claimed that they've gone to great lengths to clean up their act and have been on a significant PR push, uh, to, to, uh, which is key to this the lobbying efforts with uh, the federal government in this story. So part of these lobbying efforts by SNC-Lavalin to the PMO has been to push for a DPA, a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, uh, or a, a remediation provision of sorts. Which actually I think is a clearer way of describing right. it, calling it a remediation agreement. It's kind of like a, a plea bargain of a sort, uh, which lets you say we're, the bad things happened and we are making them right. Please do not prosecute us criminally. And is that making it right not only by our actions, our culture, but also payments? Yeah, it, it can take a lot of, there can be a lot of elements. And right. as in a plea bargain, the, the Crown has to agree and that, to exactly what the terms are going to be. And you have to sort of say, yes, we did bad things. The c- people in the company did bad things. And this is, I think, really what the case comes down to is the a kind of technical but also fundamental question about whether SNC-Lavalin is to blame for this or whether some rogue company executives did bad right. things and the company right. does not deserve right. Full, to suffer for it. Yes. So they're, 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 they're pushing for this DPA to avoid going through the courts. Yeah. And, um, and right in when the government announced this, these changes last year to, to allow these DPAs, 
they sort of state one of the purposes of it is to avoid uh, innocent parties. And in those terms, they say stakeholders and employees from being impacted. So the idea is, if you accept the idea that it was a few rogue executives at the top, then you clean, clear the decks there, and the rest of the company doesn't have to suffer. So that it's meant to sort of preserve jobs, preserve shareholder money um, by cleaning up what the problem was, as opposed to sinking the whole company under a criminal prosecution. And it is it is kind of a complicated moral question. Like deals, you know, the legal regime is different in the the states, but there are similar arrangements there where big financial firms after the great financial meltdown of the last decade paid huge amounts of money in sort of essentially fines, but people did not go to jail. Yes. And the companies didn't have to be broken up because the argument went. Yes. They employed thousands and thousands of people who had nothing to do with any wrongdoing. And is it really in the interest of justice or the public at large to drop nuclear bombs on right. all these people's jobs. Yeah. SNC-Lavalin has been pushing that particular message yeah. really hard, yes. right back to the fall, overtly, over and over, particularly in the Montreal News, saying, you know, we have 9,000 employees, like all these people are kind of at risk. This this is sort of the better good here. Yeah. So they've been, and then, of course, the, the Globe story suggests that that uh, public-facing lobbying then went through lobbyists to the PMO. Right. And I, I have, I heard on the, on the news last night that some companies do, like you were saying, David, some companies do say, okay, we can engage in some shady business. We're just going to have to pay a bit of money, and that's okay. At least we don't have to go to jail, right? Uh, so the allegations are that, as you said, Shannon, senior officials in the PMO pushed Raybold, pressured her, to intervene in this independent prosecution case to help them avoid going through the courts, which we've said, which would mean jail time. Ottawa has been speculating about why Minister Raybould was demoted last month, uh, leaving her seat as Justice Minister to now go to uh, veterans. Um, and, and this story sort of points a clear line that this could be a potential reason why. So, okay. Have we got it kind of laid out? That's sort of the state of affairs, I That's think. That's the shape of things. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the reaction. David, what was the PMO or the Prime Minister's uh, reaction yesterday morning? This is one of the more peculiar aspects of the story. Uh, he gave an answer saying that the no, neither he nor anybody in, the, in his office uh, directed Jody Wilson-Raybould to intervene in this prosecution, which is something that the justice minister legally can do. She has a dual role. She's a cabinet minister, but she's also sort of a law enforcement judicial type official. And she has the legal authority to direct prosecutions if she sees the need. It has to be public. It has to be in writing. It has to be published in the the Canada Gazette, the the official um, uh, record of of government decisions. So it, it all has to be out there. Uh, but it's a thing she she can do. It's authority the justice minister has. What Trudeau said, and he said it again and again and again, is that neither he nor anyone in his office gave her any direction as to conclusions she should reach or instructions she should give, which was not the allegation. And that is what is so strange mm-hmm. to hear from him. The allegation was that she was pressured. The allegation was that people in the PMO tried to use their influence to get Jody Wilson-Raybould to do things, not that they ordered her to. So denying that they did a thing that they are not actually alleged to have done right. uh, 
did not clear the air as much as maybe the prime minister would have liked. And then she was subsequently fired for that. Particularly the way he stuck to that line awkwardly over and over in that presser, right? And then in QP yesterday, you had the new justice minister, David Lametti, of course, being hammered by the opposition about this. And I and a bunch of other people were watching very closely to see the terminology he would use. And he returned over and over again to directed, which, again, we're all assuming has a a more precise meaning Mm -hmm. that, like you said, is not really what they're alleged to have done. But then a couple of times he also used the term pressured. So there's a more general denial there that I would say, like, linguistically, like you're getting into semantics, encompasses a more general notion of was anyone leaning on you as opposed to giving you specific marching orders. So he had to be asked, like, 71 times. Multiple times. And his first answer was quite cheeky, right? He said, I was given no direction. Well, we know. You've been justice minister for a hot minute. Like, thanks. Um, Yeah, it was was really interesting to kind of watch everyone try to pull apart what he was saying and what he wasn't and what it meant. It was a word game. It was a weird weird sort of unfolding of events. So, correct me if I'm wrong here. If the PMO had pushed her, this would be okay. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. As long as it's made open to the public. There are, I mean, there are a number of elements here. There is what is legally permitted, and what is legally permitted is for the justice minister in her role as attorney general to give instructions as long as those instructions are in writing and made public. It is. It would be strange if top-level politicians were not discussing the situation with SNC-Lavalin, giant employer with implications for public policy, has this this high-profile case. The prime minister is an MP from Montreal. Um, it would it would be weird if they'd never talked about it. The question is, what form did that conversation actually take? Right. And would it be I- illegal for people in the PMO to have said, "Hey, minister, we would like you to use your." authority in this particular way. Would that be against the law? I, not as far as I know. Would it be the sort of thing that the people would like to hear happened out of the PMO? That I, I don't think is the case yeah, either. So okay. there's a distinction between what is what is sort of allowed and what is proper and what is desirable yes. in your politicians. So Shannon, can you tell me too a little bit about what, what Shear's sort of stance was? What He came out hot. He did, and then he, he went back at it this morning. So he, he's now calling for sort of an emergency committee hearing. He, and he had a list of nine people that he wants to be pulled in front of a justice committee to kind of... He sa- and he says that the reason he wants to go that route is that we can act fast. We don't have to... This doesn't have to take a long time. We could start on Monday or whenever. Um, and so the people he, he listed were uh, Wilson Raybould, Lametti, um, Katie Telford, Jerry Budd, um, there were nine. I don't have them all at hand. So he says, basically, we need a full airing of this. You also have to imagine he smells blood. This looks pretty bad, at least what we see so far. Um, they're, they're not going to be yelling about China or India anymore in QP. There's there's something yeah. kind of much better, I guess, for them to seize their yeah. teeth on. So, And it sort of sounds like... The Conservatives and the NDP are, are united in their opposition calls for, we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to kind of shake the dirty laundry out. Wow. Susan Delacour wrote, I thought it was quite good, last last, uh, last night, you know, when we, we talk about Minister Raybould here. Her not saying anything, because when she was probed by reporters yesterday, she just said, no comment, right? She could stop this story flat out right now in its tracks and say, these allegations are completely untrue. But she's not. She's saying no comment. These are, this is between me and the the lawyers at the PMO. I mean, yeah, it says a lot, right? And it casts in such it. an interesting light, right? That fascinating two thousand word statement she put out right. yeah. when she was demoted, um, which was I thought fascinating to begin with, but 
boy, does it look different now, right? You look yes. at it through a different lens because there still has been this open speculation. There were people talking about, um, you know, it was it was widely perceived that she wasn't particularly effective in the post, that it wasn't appreciated by the PMO, that she kept sort of making not so flattering comments about the government's true efforts with Indigenous people. Yeah. And then there's this. And so there's a, a line right in that statement that I, I can't remember the exact wording, yes. but like that they have to avoid even the appearance of political interference. So it's a kind of thing with a new lens on it that that looks like a bit of an, an Easter egg in there that she was sort of trying to send yeah. up a bit of a... you read that over and you go, oh, okay, so so did she know she, that the story was going to... You know, there's so much speculation. And again, we're speculating on so all of this based on a story yes. that's still unfolding, but it... Yes, it is a. It was a really interesting statement for her but to make. I, and that there's a lot about this that people aren't behaving like obviously innocent people. Like Jody Wilson-Raybould right. could, as you say, come out and kill the whole thing. The prime minister could probably have come out and killed the whole thing if he could come out and say. Yes, we talked about SNC Lavalin because it's a big company and we care about what happens. But no, uh, I never tried to influence the minister. Or I support you know her what she did completely, and I support the new minister completely. But that's not what Jody Wilson-Raybould has done. That is not what the prime minister has said. Why not? Can she possibly? I mean, I think it was Chantal Bear last night on at, at issue said. Uh, you know, if she was in this position and she felt she was being pushed to do something against her, her, her conscience or whatever, why wouldn't she have just resigned? I mean, can she even stay in cabinet It's got to be a pretty fraught um, working environment for her, especially because, as you said, her, and as Susan Delacour pointed out, her denials are not really denials. They're just, I can't talk about yeah. this. This is between me and them. So yep. for her among her cabinet colleagues, um, that is an interesting position to be in. Oof. And this is a, a cabinet that has shown a, a lot of kind of team spirit and a lot of yes. solidarity, and that is cracked for sure. Now, how can she stay on? Well, I mean, she can stubbornly say, uh, you've made me a minister and I'm going to be a minister until you, you know, kick me out. Yep. But you're going to have to kick me out. Yeah, you're going to have to kick me. You're going to have to drag me out of And this how place. bad yeah. would that look for them at this point, oh, like God. after this chain of Not events? Good. And you resign typically if you are ordered to do something that you cannot live with. Right. But according to the chain of events as described in the Globe, she was pressured to do something and stood up to it and then suffered for it months later. But she wasn't ordered to do this thing, and she didn't do this thing. Um, David, we were talking about a little bit about this before we started recording. My what's what's caught me up is um, my mom and I were talking about this. Like, why would the PMO feel so tied to protect this company? I mean, is is it is it that it is represents sort of the staple of engineering in a, a firm in Canada? There, there's a whole. I mean, there's a. There's, the, I think, the full range of motivations could apply, and it could be a bit of this and a bit of that. SNC Lavalin is a huge company, as we've been saying. It employs a lot of people. Uh, it is, it is in a delicate state right now. It's arguably proper for the PMO to be concerned for the and for the Prime Minister to be concerned about it and to make sure that it's treated properly and justly. At the whole other end. There has been this intense lobbying effort uh, captured in the public lobbying registry. They met people from SNC Lavalin. Have met with people in the PMO. Uh, they've given the Liberal Party and a lot of money over the years, as large companies do. Um, 
Although they were doing it in dodgy ways, they right? Were indeed, they yes, were overtly circumventing yeah. election laws and kind of plugging were they the money. Giving money to the conservatives too, like it was. So it was. I think it was one hundred and ten thousand dollars to the liberals over a period of about ten ten years, and eight to the conservatives in that same period. So hmm, they're. Yeah, that's the way they were they were distributing. You can there is there is the circumstantial evidence that you can make a case that you know it's strictly corrupt that the PMO was trying to help their friends who give them a ton of money and I see you can right. make that argument. I, there's no hard that. proof of anything like that, but anything in between, right. As well, what happens next with this? So so. Um, Oh, there's a lot of different options. It's possible something's happened in the 10 minutes we've been talking. Let's go look at Twitter. So this morning it was, I guess you would say Sheer. Sheer came out, yeah. Sheer came out. He's looking at all options. Um, Dagmeet Singh as well wants an ethics inquiry. Yeah, both the major opposition leaders are calling for different. They're they're, they're agreeing with each other. But I think they look very happy to cooperate whatever it takes to kind of get the job done. When political scandals happen, the shockwave usually feels the same, you know, we're, we're it's massive, we, but then you go a distance and you you realize that okay, maybe it you know, it was varying degrees of that shockwave, maybe it was just felt extraordinarily it was heightened in Ottawa. Um, how is this situated in the political landscape of Canada? Like some are comparing this to the Mike Duffy scandal. Is this comparable? Well, it's a lot more deliberate, right? If if what the Globe story says, like chapter and verse, is is true in kind of the worst possible light, it's it's a lot more deliberate than the Duffy scandal. I I wonder how it lands with the public. Like, does this are normal people paying attention to this? Is this just noise? Does this instantly invoke the sponsorship scandal for for ordinary voters? Like that to me is the more obvious parallel, just because of like sort of the the broad facts of the case, like the the players involved in the shape of it. But I don't know. Like, like that's, I always think there's a fundamental difference between how we get really excited about things inside the bubble and how ordinary people do. And maybe that doesn't, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe there can be two different reactions there. I feel like the only way it affects the, the only way it would maybe grab onto people uh, outside of the Ottawa bubble is if you start to string along different events that the, that the liberals have, have taken part in. If it shows a pattern. If it shows a pattern. I think these things, they, they, they build up. Yeah. You know, and you don't need to know all the details of this one to recognize that, you know, the prime minister leaning on prosecutors through a couple of intermediaries to help uh, a big campaign donor is bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there there are assumptions built into that, but. I think it's harmful to the Sunny Ways brand, to the the new broom, to the we are better at we're better people, which is kind of the what the Liberals ran on in 2015, and lots of parties run on that and get elected, and then it turns out they're politicians like everybody else. But ultimately, that's one of the reasons why politicians lose power is because after 12, I know, right, years, 15 yeah. years, you know, you build up a lot of uh, build up a lot of baggage. So okay, well, we're gonna hear about this a lot. I'm sure as uh, it will literally turn our phones on and there'll be a new update. Um, and uh, uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, we've taken a lot of time to, to go through that one, but it is a big story. Okay. So what else happened this week? South of the border, we're looking at SOTU, State of the Union Address. So terrible, true. terrible acronym. Um, it makes it sound hip, which it's not. Um, <laughs> it sounds like some kind of grain bowl. Like, <laughs> so do like an, the SOTU bowl. Like yes. an icon. Hundred percent, or whatever. Yeah, Kasai Berry. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all eyes were on Washington on Tuesday night as the U.S. President uh, Donald Trump 
address the nation and the world. This, of course, happened uh, happens at the beginning of, of uh, each calendar year in office. It was delayed this year because of the government shutdown, and uh, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was very adamant that that not go on until the shutdown was was over. Um, Trump took to the stage thanking VP Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. He made no mention of the changes in the political shift in Congress. And I was listening to The Daily, as I always often do, the New York Times Daily podcast, that this is something that presidents generally always do is they come out right off the bat and say there's some acknowledgement that there's been a change. He did not. I, I'm not sure that we're surprised on that. Uh, but it was unusual. He did seem, um, I would say, more moderate. He knows that there has been a shift and he probably has to, you know, he's got to appeal more to than just to his base. So let's address some of these main themes. Unity was something that I think a lot of people were predicting. How did he ha- touch on that? I mean, well, there was argument a lot- to sort of that people should unify behind him, yes. which is all, which yes. is kind of plea for unity. Oh, if only we could get past all the political squabbles and agree on what's really important. Which is my me. agenda. <laughs> like yes, yes, the, yes, yes. So yeah, it's time for, for us all to come together. I mean, that's, that's politicians behind me forever. Yeah. You, you are driven by politics. I am driven by yes. principles. So proper unity means following my principles. Yes. Uh, so I'm not sure that's how right. convincing that line of argument was or all those implications were to people on the other side. He said, uh, uh, yeah, he, he even kind of referred to the only things that can, I don't know, something along the lines of the only thing that can make, can stop us from doing what we need to do is like political partisanship or nasty, nasty partisanship. And then he's also just an odd messenger for that kind of message. You know, it's just like standing there with a match and a gas can and saying we should stop burning houses. Like that's right. It's just, it, it, like I have a hard time parsing when when he's in like teleprompter mode. Yeah. Like I have a hard time taking seriously, pulling apart what he said because the words are so obviously not his, have no relationship to the actual way he operates. His personal voice, whether on Twitter or his actual voice, is so strong and so dominant and it's so different from that teleprompter mode that like, it's like somebody has their hand up a puppet's back. Like it just just doesn't, like they almost seem like unrelated human beings to me. There's something Susan Delacourt's brought up on this show before that I think it was around the, um, what was it? It wasn't the uh, State of the Union address, but he made it an address in December or November. Oh, the like primetime one about the border crisis. Yeah. Yeah. That one. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was so not suited to his, his personality and his format, the way, given how he acts on Twitter, that it just feels so out of place and odd. But it feels hollow. To it me. feels like hollow. it feels hollow. You you say yeah, things about yeah. unity and working together, but you know, three hours later, he's on Twitter lobbing bombs left right. and right. Pelosi sort of did at one point. He talked about the wall and that we need compromise on on immigration and whatnot. And she sort of leaned in and gave him a bit of a clap back, which was great. The thing that I thought was amusing about that, like it's the memification of the it. The memification, is, yeah. I found when I saw it in video form, it it wasn't that noteworthy. It yeah. was that freeze frame photo yeah. with that downturned mouth and the yeah. super sarcastic that I actually think like it took on a life that maybe it didn't have in it, the moment. That's right. Or a meaning that it didn't have in the and moment. And Pelosi herself, I mean, she's a politician, but she says that she did not intend 
to be patronizing or sarcastic right. that that he'd said something that she actually approved of. Sure. And, yeah. And so she and I can understand someone in her position when Donald Trump says something that you feel you can actually clap. Sure. For, like, <laughs> good you, boy. Sure. Point. Yes. And not so as not to be seen rejecting yeah. everything. But man, that's that freeze frame. That fo- but you know when powerful. you like you pause a TV show when you're watching and you get a weird like I feel like the Nobody photo in a sense was misleading was like, of the actual intention of the moment, which squares with what you're saying about so Pelosi. Crafted. Yeah. But. Quite a picture. Quite a, yeah. quite a picture. Yeah. Uh, I also like the image of her derisively reading paperwork. While yes, yes, he, yes. Like, uh, he did make mention of of the more women than ever had been elected into Congress. Something that it, it felt like he was sort of uh, owning, right? That he, you know, and he looked at them all. Which, as in a way, he does own, but yeah. not in the way he might think he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was kind of the emotional high point of the speech for me, or at least the part that kind of jumped out. But it it happened in spite of him or to spite him, not because of him. And then you have this weird specter of this guy who cannot, he looks at the world through a mirror. It's all about him. And so these women in white all jump up and they're applauding and there's like this genuine kind of swell of exuberance. And what propelled a lot of them there was loathing and anger and resentment towards him. And then you have him sort of smiling like a contented, like the Cheshire cat and saying to them, I forget what he said to them. You weren't supposed to do that or something, oh, but it was this friend. sort of indulgent, yes. friendly, you go ahead. Like, so there was this weird disconnect between like the emotion and the reason they were there. Mm-hmm. And then his response to it was like, like he wasn't getting that they were there to spite him. He's, he's like, oh, good for you, girls. Good for you. It was weird. And they were in white because... Uh, Such a striking image, eh? Right. Uh, suffragette the suffragette. There was, there was, from a Canadian perspective, there was a, a, a bit of time he spent talking about new NAFTA or NAFTA 2.0 or whatever you want to call it, um, pleading that that Congress sign the New Deal. This is going to be a little more challenging given the, the the Democrats' dominance now, and I'm wondering what you guys think about that. Like Canadians have spent a lot of time lobbying Republicans to get this thing out the door. And now we have a new Congress that's democratically run. The the official line uh, is that Canada is not going to be pushing legislators on this, that we would not like it if our MPs were being lobbied by uh, American diplomats or anybody else. And so we are going to stay out of it as much as we can, which seems smart. I don't think pushing, you know, being a foreign country saying, do this deal with us, do this deal with us, do this deal with us. I don't think that is as effective as leaning on uh, state officials, which is a lot of what we did, to say trade is really important, trade is really important. Lobbying for a particular deal comes across differently. Um, But the Canadian line is, you know, we're there if they want to talk. But the charm offensive is, is they're gearing it down for this because Democrats who are suspicious of some of the elements in the deal and don't think that the enforcement measures are strong enough and so on, will not be super receptive to foreign lobbying. We're going to have to go through a whole... Katie Simpson's going to be really busy again. <laughs> well, if here's also from Canada's perspective, if they never take it up, we still have NAFTA, which I think on the whole, was, Canada likes better yeah, than Yeah, that's true. 2.0. That's true. And Trump has threatened to um, use authority he has to uh, cancel NAFTA and then risk leaving us with nothing. And that would be a way of pushing Congress into dealing with the ratification on NAFTA 2.0. But unless and until he does that, I think on the whole, we're pretty content with nothing happening. Yeah. What is it, from a larger perspective, the State of the Union address, like is this... This sort of catapults him into his next phase of presidency. 
Um, what do you expect? Do you expect his tone to be a bit more moderate? Uh, and it seems like a lot might turn on what happens with the investigations. Like yeah, it might right. not have to yeah. do with politics at all, per se. It depends on where subpoenas are coming and what Mueller's doing and whether impeachment starts to to gain ground. Yeah, you're um, right, yeah. I mean, he just doesn't seem to have it in him to moderate. And I also wonder if things are just so toxic that there's sort of no putting that back in the bottle. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how much he would have to moderate himself in order to curry favor with Democrats who are so far gone. Yeah, yeah. they're not coming around to his side. No, no. Um, okay. Speaking of U.S.-Canada relations, let's talk about, whoa, let's talk about a piece written by longtime New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof titled, Thank God for Canada, Our Boring Neighbor is a Moral Leader of the Free World. So if you haven't read it yet, Kristof praises Canada for standing up for democratic values and basic human rights in places like Saudi Arabia, despite not having, um, full support from its allies. It suggests that it's the remaining country in the free world to stand up for these values. Uh, it points to our welcoming of refugees from Syria, our humanitarian work, and our, um, you know, our c- condemnation of, uh, of China's violation on human rights. Um, but that we're boring as heck. And no one really cares. Uh, we never make headlines. Oftentimes in this piece sort of says, wake up, because he assumes people are sleeping. Um, there's a quote, though, that really sparks some rage among Canadians. So I'll read it now. Whenever I say something nice about Canada, I get uh, indignant emails from Canadian friends pointing out the country's shortcomings, which are real. Fortunately, Canadians don't seem capable of mean emails, not even mean tweets. One study found that Americans' tweets are loaded with curses and words like hate. Canadian tweets are largely uh, are larded with awesome, amazing, and great. Shannon, <laughs> you, you, some, rar, some rage was, was, was sparked I just, in you. I thought the, the column was so weird. I actually kept wondering because he too. kept doing the, like, aggressively saying Canada was boring and kept telling the reader to wake up. I wondered if it was if it was meant to be sort of like meta or or satire <laughs> or something because like the whole thing read to me a bit like you know that shtick I don't remember which of his films it was that like Michael Moore went around Sarnia, Ontario testing people's doors yeah. to prove that they don't lock them like as though we live in like yeah. Mayberry and and that was like 15 years ago and even at the time people were like that's absurd we lock our doors in Canada <laughs> yeah. like the whole column felt like that to me like as though he thought we were like a nation of gingerbread just houses like, and um it just it, it was just weird like it it, it's condescending. I mean, maybe like there's a, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking too hard about it, but if you're, if you're lauding us for being um, a more progressive com- country that's protecting human rights in a way that obviously you're saying yours is not, perhaps that's not boring. Perhaps that's sanity. And I mean, I realize I'm, I'm taking umbrage at something. It was just sort of a little device in the column, but, no, but it's, it was just a weird piece. But there's a lot of disgraceful things happening in this country too. It's easy to stand on the, you know, on the outside and look in and go, oh, you guys you know, live in gingerbread houses. That's fun. But there's a lot of hatred that happens here too. And mean tweets and all of yeah, that. Yeah, there's mean tweets here. Yeah. <laughs> Holy there's, cow. There's what Canadian tweets Twitter is he on? But I do feel... That there was parts of it that I was like, heck yeah, I'm a little bit proud of this. I, I mean, I think it was it was a list of nice things about Canada. And I don't think that it was intended to be a full and complete picture of 
Canada, but either domestically or internationally. But I think, and keep in mind, it's also largely written for an American audience. Yeah. Right. And telling them like, okay, it seems like America is sort of withdrawing from the world and causing more messes than it cleans up, uh, which arguably has been the case for a long time, but doesn't even seem to be trying to clean up messes <laughs> as much as it, it has. Uh, but, you know, Canadians are, are doing stuff. They're working on Venezuela. They're standing yeah. up to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. They're standing up to China, even though it's not really in their interest. It would be easier to roll over. Yeah, and I think we There's take... hope, fellow Americans. Yeah. I see w- that as a, as a useful message, I think. Yeah, and I think we take it for granted a lot, too. That, that we do these days, that our country's yeah. progressive like that. I think we take it for granted. But yeah, I, the whole boring thing that we're just like so painfully boring here, it bothers me a little bit too. Like, Well, and I don't think we are. And and I also, and I don't even mean that in a defensive way. I also don't think we're that nice. Like yeah, we're yeah. like, think about the most repressed person, you know, like as a human being, they still have mean thoughts. It just comes out in passive aggressive ways. And that's the way I always think of Canada. Yeah, actually, like we just, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't get this notion that like, we're like, we're cute dolls. And it's, like, you know, I even love that he's like, but get them on a hockey, get them on the hockey sure. rink. Uh, sure. They'll, they'll toss oh, you around. Oh, 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 oh. Sure. <laughs> it's the only thing they're known for. Maybe maybe David's really hit on the key. The point is that was for an American audience. Yeah. It's a it's an it's a completely facile view of Canada because it's meant for people who know like a boot and hockey and Tim Hortons <laughs> about us and that's it. Like yeah. it's that level of yeah. engagement with like real Canada, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's true. Okay, well that's all for us today. Uh good discussions. Thanks guys very much for joining. Can I get your Twitter handles, please? I am at David Reevely. And I am at S Proudfoot. All right. Have a great weekend. The 2020 Network is brought to you by Interac. Interact maintains one of the world's largest debit networks by supporting 28 million active debit cards in Canada. Thanks to their secure technology and zero liability policy, Canadians can make everyday purchases with peace of mind. Learn more at interact.ca slash fraud prevention. 